You are listening to Speaking Candidly with Candace. I'm your host, Candace Schoner. My guest today is Senator Creed Deeds, who represents the 25th Senate District in the state of Virginia and is a leading voice for mental health reforms. Welcome, Senator Deeds, to the podcast. I truly appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule to be here today. Thank you, Brian. It seems like... It seems like whenever I turn on the news these days, I hear about another mass shooting. Do you think this is something Americans just need to accept, or is there something that can be done on a state or national level to reverse these tragic events? Well, it, it's something we've gotten used to, have to have to be used. Or certainly things we can do, not only to reduce the endless supply of firearms that are on the street, but also to make sure that people that are truly in crisis get the service and keep people out of crisis when they have mental issues. As you know, a former University of Virginia football player is now in custody after a triple homicide and wounding two other students on campus late Sunday night. Um, we don't know yet, or at least I don't believe we know whether this individual had mental illness. Do you think that we've gotten too complacent to assume that everybody that commits a violent act has a mental illness. Sometimes it seems that there are a lot of assumptions made without, without knowledge of all the, um, and with that, with that tragic set of circumstances, UVA, we're going to have to take the time and we owe it to, to everybody involved. Uh, you know, there, there's trauma at so many different levels, trauma throughout the community, but certainly trauma for the people that, observed what happened, the people that had to call the parents, the students who now have played in the classrooms where the students that died used to be, the faculty that have those students in their had those students in their classes. There's multiple levels of trauma. We owe it to all those people to find out as much as we can about what happened and see if there are public policy choices we can make that would make it less likely that a situation like that would arise. I understand you've been working on building a statewide system of care for mental health. Can you explain what that system entails and how it will benefit Virginians? Sure. You know, for, for in the 1960s, I guess we went through a deinstitutionalization process around the country where we tried to get hospitals. We, we recognize that, that hospitals are necessary, that there will always be people that need long-term care, and there will always be serious problems that have to be dealt with in hospitals, but the, the reality and the evidence shows that people have a much better chance of long-term out, better outcome if they are treated in their community. So we, we are better off and we can treat people more efficiently, more effectively, more humanely if we can treat them in their communities. In Virginia, our system, so as such as it is, is basically eight um, hospitals, adult hospitals, one, one pediatric facility, and, and 40 CSPs, community service boards, that provide regionally in the communities. Now, where we're off kilter a little bit, you know, na- nationally, uh, most states spend 70% of their mental health dollar in the communities, basically providing community health care and community service boards. 30% of their mental health dollars spent um, in, in the hospitals. We spend about 51% of the, our mental health dollar in the hospitals. That um, reduces the, the 
amount of money that's available in the communities. We've got to figure out how to um, put more money, invest more money long term into our into our CSBs if we're going to provide more care for more people. Now, one thing we when took most probably the most important reform, and we we're about six years into this, so it's it, it's really not we don't know what the full results are. Um, we we this we implemented we been implementing over the last several years this program called step virginia that basically explodes the services available through the community service boards takes the list of mandated services from two to nine and and that in, in itself has meant a significant investment of new money in at the community service boards throughout the state but we we still have problems you know last year you know with the, with the pandemic basically undercut the legs of just about Everything, everything we were trying to do in our mental to rebuild our mental health system. Um, what five psychiatric hospitals shut down for a period of time. The reality is, you can have all the beds in the world, but if you don't have personnel to staff the beds, the frontline people, providers, you, you don't have beds. And we didn't have providers. Um, we we were able to raise the pay in a significant way for. Um, the people that work in the hospitals, but we still have a lot of work to do there. We have about a 31% vacancy rate at the CSBs. And part of the problem, part of the reason why we have that vacancy rate is the same reason we're, we're losing providers who will take Medicaid um, in the private sector. And we, we, we go on the cheap. We, we've got to invest more money in employee compensation at both the CSB level, the hospital level, and we, we also have to raise reimbursement rates so we can get more people back into Medicaid. Well, are we doing anything to train the younger people who are out there to have positions in mental health and work at these facilities? Well, that's the chicken and egg thing. We are, we are, do, we are doing more. You know, I, I, I carried a budget amendment this past year that created more psychiatric residencies in the state of Virginia. Um, psychiatric residencies, like any sort of residencies, are expensive. But if we if we want more professionals in the field in in Virginia, we're going to have to we're going to have to pay some money. Um, we, we we basically have to, you know, I I think if we can make the field more attractive, we if we can show that there are ways that people can can provide for their families doing this work, that's part of the way we began to, to get more people interested in that work in our colleges and universities. But but we've also um, done more to try to invest in nursing programs and in, in some vocational programs at our technical schools to make sure that we, we can provide the workforce to the frontline personal service um, that, that is necessary and makes makes the, the world go round, at least in our hospitals and, and, and at, the, at our other providers. Well, you mentioned COVID and obviously the huge impact it had on the entire world, not only the health system. And you talk about raising salaries for healthcare workers. What, what about mental health benefits and some other time off um, that can be used as an incentive for people to enter the profession? I, I hear what you're saying. You know, I, I think that we're going to have to consider um, providing people more break time and providing more more services to allow people to have more time to to ease back to the workforce and also to have the time necessary off the time off that to allow them to take mental health breaks I mean, we're going to have to recognize that, that as part of the our workplace going forward um it, it's it, it it's chicken and egg thing the marketplace right now 
in, in lots of parts of Virginia, in fact, all over the place, is recognizing the fact that it's hard to get people back to work. And, and so the, the initial pay scale in many, many professions is well above the minimum wage. Um, and, I, and, and as you've seen, as we've seen in Charlottesville and Albemarle County, if we're going to have attract um, bus drivers, um, people that drive, drive the school bus, the county and the city schools, we're going to have to pay more money to get people involved in that field. I, I think that the next the next wave will show that that um, services that provide more time off, um, it, is that you're going to have to provide more time off to get the workers involved in this kind of work. The other thing that, that I think that, that your question goes to, you know, is, is mental health equity when it comes to insurance, when it comes to providing um, benefit, the benefit through your insurance. And, and that's something that we still have a long way to work on. We, we've passed mental health equity legislation at both the state and federal level, but that's not measured up the way we need it to. And, we, and candidly, we've got to do some more work make sure that people have coverage for the services they need. You know, the government moves very slowly and legislation takes a long time. I know in 2020, Virginia adopted the red flag law. Yes, Can you explain exactly what that is and how long it took for that to become law? Well, it, it, uh, honestly, that legislation had been introduced, George Barker in the state Senate from Fairfax County had introduced that legislation for three or four years um, until we got a majority. We got the Democratic majorities vote the House and the Senate. We got it passed in 2020. Um, and, and even then, there were a lot of people that were concerned about um, due process. You're t- removing firearms from people um, is an issue that a lot of people t- are very sensitive about. You know, he- here's the situation though, if a is subject to an emergency custody order, order and a temporary detention order. If they are hospitalized, they lose their firearm rights until they show they're restored. You know that this is this is just a temporary removal in an emergency situation. What the way? If you can go to a magistrate, convince the magistrate for a due process hearing, a uh, firearm can be removed for a very temporary period of time. It's going to be um, returned to the people automatically. Unless somehow the order gets extended, um, it's not been used a whole lot in Virginia. But but um, it and I think part of that is because of a significant amount of public resistance to the law. But but it, it's been used in, in very important circumstances. I think somebody who, who doesn't meet the standard for an ECO or TDO, um, they they don't meet the standard for, for being for having a mental illness that makes them a danger to themselves or others or unable to care for themselves. But there is an emergency situation that that um uh, this this is an important tool that I think the, the evidence from the other states where the red flag law is red flag legislation is in effect, notably um Connecticut is that the number of suicides that would occur. It's taken, it's taken firearms away from people that otherwise may have themselves. So uh, it, it's a significant piece of legislation. I'm proud of it. And you should be. You, you lost your son, Gus, in 2013 um, due to suicide. He was bipolar. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. What factor do you think the stigma of mental illness played in your son's death? and how it affects us all. I, I, I think that the, the stigma of mental illness is, has been 
huge a huge impediment to people getting the services they need. Pe- nobody wants to admit that they have a problem. Nobody in a fam- family, a mother, father, brother, sister, don't want to admit that somebody else in the family has a problem. I mean, and, and that that prevents so many people from reaching out and getting help. Um, that you know, the, the the truth is that mental health issues arise in you know nearly. Well, certainly in every family, but about one in four people in their lifetimes will experience some sort of mental health crisis. A significant number of people have, have um, very heavy crises at, at some point in their lives. And you know what we have to recognize, and this is one thing that the stigma impedes, we have to recognize that the brain is part of the body. That mental health is health. Mental health care is health care. You know that we all have mental health issues, and we all have to get them addressed. So do you think, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Senator, uh, I'm do sorry, you yeah. think, do you think that insurance companies will be mandated to include mental health as part of services and will there be any fixed costs associated with medication? You know, it, it's hard to know what, how, what will happen. I, I think the whole idea of the mental health equity legislation that passed at the federal level a number of years ago and that passed at the state level was to make sure that mental health services were included but there are so many there are loopholes here and there and you still hear people who are in the insurance companies for care we've got we've simply got to address that issue at both the state and federal level and what about for people of lower income who cannot afford insurance well here's we, we've got a whole department at the state level in, in our department of medical assistance services that runs medicaid that's devoted to behavioral health and i can tell you that the people who have Medicaid in Virginia, and, and that's generally the, the poorest of the poor, if, if they've got signed up for Medicaid, they've got good more access to behavioral health care than a whole lot of people with private insurance. I did not know that. That is good. It's very good. I'm really proud of that program. I mean, they, they, they instituted a uh, system of managed care about four years ago, and I, I'm not really happy with the whole um way that that process has worked. I think a lot of people have been denied services that way. I understand that you somehow you have to get control of the cost or, or else you're just going to blow up the system. I, I know that, that people have had access to care through Medicaid that they wouldn't otherwise have had. And um, that, that is been a lifesaver in a number of situations. I think another issue that we're talking about is guns and I understand that guns surpassed car accidents as a leading cause of death for children and teenagers in 2020. What is being done on the front of gun control on the state and national level? Well, on the national level, they passed some legislation this year that I, I don't know will really, um, you know, I, 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 it's hard to know what the impact of that's going to be. But one of the most significant pieces of that is they provide incentives for states to pass red flag laws. Now we've, we've already passed a red flag bill in Virginia. You know, in Virginia, we passed legislation, I guess in 2020, when the Democrats had control of both houses to make sure that red, there's a red flag in place to give localities the ability to keep firearms out of some public spaces, public courthouses and public, and public parks to reinstitute the one handgun a month purchase ban and to, to pass a uniform, universal background check we passed significant gun legislation in 2020, and we're going to continue to look at it. 
You know, this year, I know that there will be a number of bills introduced relative to to assault weapons. You know, I've always thought the, the assault weapon or assault-like weapon, semi-automatic firearms are so common these days. They're one of the most popular um, firearm platforms in the, in the market that um, the, the most effective way to have that sort of legislation in place would be at the federal level. You know, between 1994 and 2004, um, assault-like weapons were not le- not legal, and um, once they were, um, once you know, under pre- the second President Bush, the ban on fi- on semi-automatic weapons, assault-style weapons, went out. Went when, once that was no longer the law. Once it was deauthorized, uh, the number of crimes related to those weapons went up dramatically. Um, we, we have so much to do. At the end of the day, there's so many guns on the street. Um, we've got we've got to see. What we what sort of legislation we can pass that would effectively reduce the amount of crime and reduce the, the ability of people intent on doing bad things from getting their hands on firearms. Well, it seems like controlling the gun purchases is a great first step. But how do we a get back the guns that are already out there and b how do we protect people from buying guns at these shows, even though we have laws that say you have to have a background check? As far as I can tell, there are dealers that ignore that. Well, maybe they do ignore it. And, and people that break the law every day, all we can, we, all, no matter how, what, how we strengthen the law, there always can be people that break the law. But both federal and state law require people with firearm dealers, fire, licensed federal firearm dealers, have to have background checks before they transfer weapons. And in 2000, we passed as part of the background check, background law, background check law was to make sure that people at, at that private sellers, uh, any commercial sales, any commercial, commercial transaction, anytime you sell a firearm, whether you do it at a, at a gun show or um, in your back, back room, you, if you're selling the firearm, a fire, background check is required. So, we, we make the law, we, we give certain law enforcement agencies the ability to enforce the law. Um, that, that, I'm not sure what else we can do. As far as the, the firearms that are out there, you know, you, you are talking about an issue that, I, that I'm really concerned about. You know, to 2020, we had um, firearm, we had um, very broad assault weapon legislation to pass. Uh, to, to consider the legislation was too broad. It needed a lot of work in terms of tightening up the definition. But but I, I talked to police officers that I trust, people that I know I've known for years about the firearm. He, he you know, I remember being told very candidly by a guy that I trust, if you authorize the police to try to confiscate a privately owned piece of property of one of those firearms, you're just going to invite bloodshed. The the reality is that in our in our um, constitutional system, um, property, even if it's not popular, if it's bought legally, people have certain due process rights to that firearm. You can't, um, you, you, you're not going to be able to confiscate it. You know, but the best we can probably do is set up as, as make sure that it's not legal to acquire it after a certain, uh, some kind of date and, and dry up the, the supply of ammunition that, that's commercially saleable. So, that you're not able to use the weapon with any sort of ammunition that, that you can buy commercially. Um, and, and also then we, we probably need to have a, create a buyback program to make sure people can, can sell them back 
once they um, realize that they're not usable. You know, that was going to be my next question about buyback programs. You're saying we should do one or is that in the works? Well, I, 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 I think you will probably see that in some legislation introduced this year. I don't know whether it will it will be in the works because I, it, it's, it's too early to know how far the legislation will go. But, but it seems to me that, that we are in, in a situation where we, you know, as you point out, we see these firearm tragedies every day or almost every day in the news somewhere in the country. Um, and granted, the, the, the one we saw most recently, most close to home, did not involve an assault-style assault weapon. But it's clear that, that nobody needs these sorts of firearms. That they People have told me they're fun to shoot and people that are professional, um, you know, that they, they're, they're professional target shot, shoot, target shooters. I, I get it. I get that those things are important to them. But but there's no way you use one of these firearms to go hunting. There's no way you can protect some protect somebody from or protect your apartment or your condominium or your even your house with one of these weapons. I mean, they are, they're just killing machines. When people say guns don't kill people, people kill people. What do you have to say to that? Well, I, I say that, that people do kill people. You know, the firearm is a, is a tool that, that people use to kill people, but ultimately they the person. But um, the supply of firearms that's on the street is something that we have to be concerned about. We have to, we have to, you know, I, I get it that bad people do bad things and it's very difficult to get to stop bad people from doing bad things. But if you reduce the supply of firearms that are available, if you make it harder for them to get those firearms, you make it harder for them to do bad things with the firearms, that might be the best you can do. It was almost, what, 20 years ago since uh, Sandy Hook, gun violence, the mass shootings there? It was about, it was about 10, 10, 11 years ago, yeah. What kind of progress do you think we have made since then well, on this I, front? I, 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 I would like to think that we, you know, I, I would have thought that that if we were ever going to make progress, we would have made progress then. And uh, people will think back on that time. Joe Manchin was working with people to try to put something together and to get the West Virginia senator move to, senator to move forward on this type of legislation is significant. They were working towards some sort of federal background check bill. Um, and, and I thought it had some some real steam. I thought they had a real chance to get it done. Ultimately, they didn't. The, the legislation they got passed this year in, at the in the Congress was the most significant gun legislation they passed in in many years. In Virginia, as I said, we passed um, a sig significant number of bills in 2020. Um, we have more work to do. Is gun violence a political? I mean, I think it is a political issue. Is the it's, problems what we have right now is the fact that we are a country divided and that we cannot come to a consensus politically? We don't talk to each other as adults firearms. We gather up into our tribes and shout at each other about our positions. What we need to do is sit around at a round table and just and just um, have a be able to come to consensus about about firearms. You know, in this country, we we have you know I I, I grew up in the country. I grew up way. I probably learned to shoot a rifle about the time I learned to read. You know, I, I, I grew up hunting. I'm not an athlete. I grew up in the woods. Um, I, I get it. Pe people are, are, are the whole notion that, that a, um, a rifle is a tool and something that's important to use. And, and you know, we lived out, you know, I, we didn't grow up with any money. Um, we, we, we 
killed animals to eat. Um, and I, and there are a lot of people that still get, live that way. I get it. Um, we've got to recognize that there are legitimate purposes for some of those weapons, but there are illegitimate purposes too. And we've got to be able to come to consensus around some of these issues. We don't talk to each other as, as neighbors, which we ought to be able to do, or as adults about firearms. I 100% agree. We're running close to out of time. And I wanted to ask you before uh, the podcast ends, what would you tell people who are feeling helpless about the current state of affairs with mental health and gun violence? There's no point in being helpless. You know, the, the, you know there's a, um, up on the walls of, of, of the Kennedy, John F. Kennedy. Today, we're, we're making this podcast is the anniversary of John F. Kennedy's death. And, and can't, you know, frankly, everybody that was alive on November 22nd, 1963, remembers that event, remembers where they were and remembers how they heard it. And I certainly do. And, and, and it still chokes me up a little bit. But on the, the up at his library in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there's a great line from Profiles and Courage. We, the people, are the boss. And we get the kind of political leadership, be it good or bad, that we demand and deserve. And that, that, to me, that perfectly describes the relationship between people and this democratic republic. We have to stay engaged every single day. We have elections every year. We have elections for state officials, local officials, national officials, and all the elections matter. If we want the best things from government, we have to demand the best things from government. And we have to put in office and put in place plans to, to get the right things done. So I, I say, don't be hopeless. Um, don't be helpless. Um, you know, be strong and be positive and be optimistic and work for the best things in, in society. And you know what? An election doesn't work out here or there. There's always an election down the road to fix the problem. There's always there's always a reason to keep working for the future. You know, John, Bill, Bill Clinton back in 92 and his 92 his cam, campaign song was that Fleetwood Mac song, Don't Stop thinking about tomorrow that's exactly right you know we got to we got to be optimistic and forward thinking always no matter how bad things get well do we need to wait for elections to do something should americans write to their senators and governors and all that with what what they think needs to be done or to, to get more eyes on the problems the squeaky wheel gets the grease in life and politics you know you have and and people that know me have heard me say that over and over and over again. You have to constantly be in contact with officials, whether you like them or not, whether you vote for them or not. You have to constantly be in contact with them and try to shower them with information to um, be, be as helpful as you can, but also be and, and be as informative and principled as you can, but always reach out to your elected officials. In the world of email where we live now, you know, it's easy to reach out. You know, find the email address for your elected official and let them know what you think. On that note, I'm going to say thank you, Senator Deeds, again, for your time and uh, providing us with the information we need so that we can make informed decisions and have some hope. And to my listeners out there, remember, you are not alone. It's okay not to be okay. And every cloud has a silver lining.